this, what shall be done to the wicked as dead? And if you would read the answer along with me. The souls of the wicked shall at death be cast into the torments of hell, and their bodies lie in the graves till the resurrection and judgment of the great day. And again, these Baptist catechisms, we're not creating these. These are uh, available online for you. You can use the Redeemer Fellowship app, you can use our website, uh, and you can go and find each and every one of these catechism questions. And I would encourage you to do that, to go find these catechism questions, uh, maybe even use them as a motivation for family devotion as you are uh, seeking to spend time with the Lord and your family this week. It's a great way to, um, to just study God's Word and follow along with the verses that are covered along with it. Um, so I would encourage you to do that. Uh, and then if you have your Bibles and want to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 as we continue uh, through our series. Matt, are my points in the computer? Sweet. Awesome. Alright. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me or follow along on the screen. And for Robert's sake, we are going to read the entire chapter uh, and then work through it bit by bit. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth not let excuse me, not let your mouth lead you to sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. If you see in a providence the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivate fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who, who toils for the wind. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also 
to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life. God keeps him, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the words that, Lord, we have read previously in Ecclesiastes, the wisdom that we have, uh, Lord, seen from the author of Ecclesiastes, from this preacher, Lord, to, uh, Lord, as he is, Lord, just outlines for us uh, time and time again uh, that which is of the world and the, the vanity that is there apart from Christ. And, Lord, I pray today as we seek to understand Ecclesiastes 5, Lord, that you would lead, that you would guide our hearts, that you would help us to understand. And Lord, I pray that we would have hearts that are prepared to receive the word, hearts that have come uh, ready to understand, ready to listen, ready to be affected, Lord, that you would help us to set aside our pride, set aside our selfishness, or just set aside uh, our sin and the things that distract us, Lord, to focus right now today on your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, uh, I titled my sermon today, Wisdom for the Child of God, uh, because the, the theme of our, of our text, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, very much in, in its entirety is, is just very useful for the child of God. In fact, it applies to us directly. It's easy for us to read sometimes, uh, a lot of times in Ecclesiastes, and think this is only talking about non-believers. Uh, this is because it is. A lot of it is talking about, as uh, Ubi said, a lot of it is talking about that which uh, was us before we were in Christ. That uh, it's like a picture into the unbeliever's life. Uh, but today, as we move into chapter five, uh, we begin to kind of see a little bit more uh, as well. So. Though so far as we've been working our way through Ecclesiastes, it has been almost like the author of Ecclesiastes has been, it's basically just been like lament after lament, uh, maybe even to the point of complaining. It just seems like this guy is like, he can't find anything right with the world. It's just, it's just lament, complain. Uh, there's vanity, there's injustice in the world. And that seems to be the, the bulk of that which we have read so far in Ecclesiastes. But as we'll see today, and as we'll continue to see uh, more through the book of Ecclesiastes as we make our way through, uh, that it was indeed added to the, the wisdom portion of Scripture for a reason. Because there is a great deal of wisdom that is to be applied to us as believers and, and is helpful for us. And so as we, as we begin to read uh, chapter 5 in, the, in Ecclesiastes, uh, in my opinion, it begins to look a little bit more uh, maybe like something we would read in the Proverbs. Uh, or, or the Psalms or something like that, uh, where he begins to, he shifts gears a little bit and begins to speak directly to us uh, to give us wisdom, to encourage, to help us know how we should live, not just that everything in this life is vanity. And so he starts this off by talking about the way that we should come properly to worship the Lord. He begins by talking about the, the fear of God and then and then moves from that, we, we see a pretty clear divide in the text in, in two parts. He, he starts off by talking about a proper way to worship God, uh, having a proper fear of the Lord in, in our worship. Uh, but then moves in kind of like 
shifts into talking about wealth and power and honor and, and begins talking about these things and the vanity that is to be found here apart from Christ. And yet all of it throughout the entirety of this text, and I think we'll see that what is the overarching theme is in fact what, what my ESV titles at the beginning of chapter 5 as the fear of God. The fear of God. And that's, that's our first point as we read in verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read those again for us. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near, to listen as better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for dreams come with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. So let's stop here, which is verses 1 through 3. We see, right off the bat, the, the author of Ecclesiastes talking directly to, not to non-Christians, not to unbelievers, but to people who are about to do what? About to go to the house of the Lord. About to offer worship. About to make sacrifices to the Lord. They're, they're going to worship. These are believers that are being talked about here, that are being addressed here at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There was a, um, uh, a short film done by uh, Desiring God. I don't know if you're familiar with Desiring God Ministries. Uh, but they did a short film one time called James 3. was the title of the short film, uh, which is a very appropriate title if you know what James 3 discusses, what it talks about. But in this short film, uh, by Desiring God, these you see kind of this family. And this family, it's them on a Sunday morning, you begin to understand. And they're, they're getting up, and they're, they're getting dressed. They're going through their morning routine, getting ready. Uh, they're rushed. They're, everything's crazy. And there's no talking at all through the, through the entire short film. There is only just music playing in the background. Uh, there's no talking. It's completely silent. Now, the, the people in the movie, the actors, they're, they're talking to each other. And you see their lips moving, and you see them interacting with each other. But you never hear any talking. But by the body language, by the way they're, in, they're interacting with each other, you begin to understand pretty quickly that this is a family that is uh, not at all treating each other well. They're angry with each other. They're, they're harsh with each other. They're unkind with their words. They're unkind with the way they treat each other. The husband gets out of bed and is, and is walking through the living room and stubs his toe in the laundry and kicks the laundry out of his way. And, and the, the wife gets the children up and, and gets their breakfast ready and and the child spills her milk, and you can see the frustration of the mom. Oh man, the child spilled the milk, and just anger and frustration. And all throughout this, this entire short film, even as they're, they're driving, the wife is putting on her lipstick in the car, and, and the husband just frustrated the whole time, and, and slams on his brakes at one point, and causing the wife to mess up her lipstick. And she gets over and, and yells at him and gives him a look, and, and just pure just, just disgust and, and anger and hostility through the entirety of this of this short film until at the very end of the short film they make it to church, they get out of the car there's no smiles at all for the entirety of this film until they walk into church and the first person they meet they greet with a smile and a handshake and a hug and immediately put on a face of oh, okay, gotta get ready, I'm here at church it's time to shift gears and, and put on a show for everyone that's here and the, the movie ends, the short film ends, with seeing this, this family and this couple 
standing in a pew, singing a worship song. If you get to hear the song that they're singing, it's it's doxology, a song we sing. They're singing, uh, praise God for whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. And it ends, it concludes with seeing these two people who through the entirety of this day, of this morning, have treated each other and their family. And honestly, uh, the fact that they're coming to the house of the Lord to worship with nothing but hostility, disdain, and aggression. You see these two individuals standing with their eyes closed, with the, the husband's hand raised, and worship to God. And you can't help but think to yourself at the end of this short film, what is wrong with this picture? And as I describe it, I think for most of us, we know that for us, we have had these kinds of Sunday mornings. We have had these times where the entirety of our morning is filled with aggression, anger, sin. And as soon as we make it to the house of the Lord, we put on our face, put on the show. I'm, I'm here for these people to let them know that I'm good and, and to worship. And then most likely, right back to the way things were after worship. I don't, I'm guilty of this. This is not me saying everyone else is guilty of this. This is me saying we as believers, as human beings, are guilty of doing this thing. But let us not think because this is normal that this is okay. The, the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand that this is not an okay way to enter into the house of the Lord for worship. There is a way that we should approach the worship of our God. There is a way that we should approach coming into the presence of God to worship. Now, we recognize that this building does not house the presence of God, but when we as a people, we as God's church, come together to sing praises to our God, to sit under the teaching of his word, we are indeed coming into the very presence of God. And what we are doing is a significant thing, a significant act of worship to a holy and a righteous God. And if we come into this place, we come into worship with hearts that are that are unprepared, hearts that have thought nothing of our of our sin, nothing of the holiness of God, nothing of of what it means to truly need the gospel, then we are as guilty as the people talked about here in the beginning of Ecclesiastes 5. We are offering a sacrifice of fools. We are are doing evil in our worship. And the thing that changes us, the, the, the understanding that we have to come through, come to, which is point number one that's on the screen, is, is that we have to understand that we need a fear of the Lord. We have to have a fear of God in order for our worship to be right, in order to get our hearts right, prepared for worship. So the question has to be asked, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear the Lord? We, we, we've heard this and we've read this in the Bible over and over again. It's, it's all through the New Testament talking about the fear of the Lord. It's in our, in our uh, uh, wisdom books. It's in uh, the law. It's, it's, it's all through the Old Testament. Not only that, it's in the New Testament. We hear it. But the question has to be understood correctly because there's all kinds of people today that get so hung up on this concept of the fear of God. I've had lots of conversations with people, and I'm sure uh, some of you have too, where, where they hear, oh, fear God. Well, that doesn't sound right. What kind of loving and kind and compassionate God would, would demand that we, that we fear him? How could that be? And, and like people struggle with this. They get hung, on, hung up on this. But there is an understanding that we need to come to of what it means to fear the Lord. A helpful way, I think, of understanding the fear of God uh, is 
is given by Martin Luther. So Martin Luther makes a distinction when he's talking about the fear of God. Because when most people hear the word fear, they think scary movies, monsters coming to get you, hiding, running away, uh, screaming, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. That, that's their, their concept of fear, like, like fleeing from this imminent danger that is about to attack me. But there is a difference between what, what it means as believers to fear God and, and that kind of fear. And, and Martin Luther makes a distinction between what he calls uh, servile fear and filial fear. And, and with servile fear, and I hope I'm pronouncing these right, these are Latin words, so I don't know, but, but he makes a distinction between that kind of fear, which is the, a fearing for one's life, like you see in a scary movie, of running away, or, or perhaps even the, the fear of a, of a slave under the hand of an aggressive slave master, an abusive slave master, this kind of fear that is, that is fearing for their, for their life or their well-being. And the other kind of fear, a, a filial fear, which, which represents less of a, of a fearing for your life, but rather a, a respect and a, and a reverence and an honor that is shown to, to like a father. The respect that a son has or daughter has for their father and for, for his, not only his love, but also his authority. And I do think it can be help, very helpful for us to understand the, the difference in the type of fear that we have to come to an understanding of having before God. It's important for us to understand it in context. That it's not like the fear of a slave under a tyrannical, abusive slave master. But rather, it is the relationship of a son or daughter, as we are, of a good and loving and mighty father. However, I do think that in Christianity and a lot of the Christian community, we've done harm to, to a proper understanding of the fear of God because we can be sometimes too quick to want to rationalize away the fear of God or rationalize it or more accurately, accurately make it seem more palatable, right? More palatable to us as, as human beings, as simple human beings, to make it seem more, I don't know, warm, more cozy because there is indeed an element of fearing God that requires that we understand his might, his holiness, his righteousness, and his wrath upon sinners. There is a necessary understanding of that. But in the, the Christian community, sometimes we want to be so quick not to push people away by talking about that aspect of God, by not talking about we owe God's wrath upon sinners, and we want to, uh, wrath upon sinners, and yeah, then the gospel. And we kind of want to throw in real quick the, the answer to the, to the fear of God, real quick, the answer to, to this kind of, fear of the wrath of God so quickly that I think many times we, we tend to almost explain away what is a, a right and healthy fear of God. There's a good reason that the writer of Proverbs in chapter 1 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Because think about it. What must a person come to an understanding of before they will ever be saved? They have to come to an understanding of a fear of God an understanding of God's righteous anger and wrath that is rightly due them because of their sin. Any of us who, were, who are saved today had to come to that realization first. Before the gospel can ever be seen as beautiful, before we can ever see what Christ has done on the cross for us and recognize the value of it and the importance of it, 
We have to first understand that without Christ, God's wrath is upon us. And that should cause us fear. In fact, I think that should cause us fear that looks a lot more like the fear of someone about to be destroyed than the fear of someone who has a loving father. Because before Christ in our lives, that is our status. And a healthy understanding of that, a healthy fear of the wrath of God is necessary before anyone can come to a saving knowledge and understanding of the gospel. That has to be the starting point. Now, this is not where we stay as Christians. Recognize this, that we have not been called to live in a state of fear of God's wrath. If we are in Christ, we have been freed from the wrath of God. Christ has taken the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. We no longer have to fear it. We no longer have to tremble and hope that we are not saved. But that has to be the starting point. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous uh, Puritan preachers, in one of his most famous sermons, titled it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was said that as he was preaching, mind you, in this time there was not all the sound equipment that we have today and all of that, but as he was preaching, it was said that as he would be preaching this sermon that he would preach over and over again, simply reading the, the, the manuscript to the congregation, he would oftentimes have to stop because people couldn't hear him over the crying and the wailing and the lamenting that was going on in the audience over their sin and over the, the wrath of God that is upon sinners. And so we have to understand that this is the God we serve, a God that punishes the evildoer, a God who, who punishes sin, but a God that we now have as our good father. But this doesn't somehow turn God into, into this big stuffed animal, this big cuddly figure that we can now like tuck under our arm and take with us everywhere we go and throw up in the air. And, and, and this kind of, of view of God as just cuddly, sweet, uh, you know, sissified, I would say, this view of God. That is not the right way to fear God. That does not, we do not move from a state of fearing God's wrath on our lives to a state of nonchalant lack of reverence for God. He is still the all-powerful, sovereign, holy creator and ruler of the universe. And knowledge of that fact will lead us to a right understanding of who God is. It will lead us to reverence and all. As Hebrews 12, 28-29 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What is acceptable worship? Worship that, has, that is reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire is not cuddly. A consuming fire does not make you think of rainbows and unicorns. It is power. It is authority. It is not to be messed with, not to be uh, deceived. This is still the God we serve. The author of Hebrews is, is saying, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and offer praise to this God. He is worthy of our praise. We should praise him. We should not fear to praise him, but we should not lack reverence and awe for this God that we serve. So, the way to avoid, as the text says, offering a sacrifice of fools, 
verse 1 says, is to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are every time we gather together to worship Him. This is why the liturgy that we do here at Redeemer Fellowship is so important to us, why we see it as good and right. Is that because preparing our hearts for worship, if we are truly preparing our hearts for worship, if we have a fear of God, we must come in confession, confessing our sin, repenting of our sin before a holy and just God, realizing that the holiness of God and the unworthiness of us will lead us to the only proper worship of this God. That's the only way that we can worship God properly is through a right fear of God. So I would encourage you, church, that when we come together, when we come to prepare our hearts, use the time of confession that we have, the time that we had today, not just to, to veg out and maybe, if Sean's doing the confession, sit down for a while, but use this time to pour your heart out before God, to think about the, what you, as a sinner, rightly deserve but that has been taken away from you because of Christ's work on the cross and you have been declared righteous. We must come to this understanding in order to deepen our worship, in order to prepare our hearts to receive the word of God, the commands of God, the instruction that we have here in God's word. Use that time of confession to point your heart towards God in humble confession. Seek the grace that is available in Christ alone because a heart that is prideful, Unwilling to confess sin is not a heart that is open to receive the word of God being preached. If we harden our hearts to confessing our sin, if we refuse to admit who we are, who we know we are, and then we come and expect to, to receive the words of God and, and learn and, and grow, we're deceiving ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. We are offering a sacrifice of fools if we do this. And the heart... It's really what the preacher is talking about here. It's really the, the point that he's trying to get at, which is why in verse 2, he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. The writer draws a direct correlation here, and, and as we'll see going forward, between the words that we use, the words we say, especially the quantity of words that we use, and foolishness, folly, even evil at times. The New Testament has so much to say about how Christians are to use their words. James chapter 3, as we talked about that, uh, that short film, it describes all kinds of damage that the tongue can do, how hard it is to tame, to control the tongue. It says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The way we use our words, the way we use our mouths is so, so important. In fact, in Matthew 15, Jesus says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. He goes on in, in 18, verse 18 and 19 to say this, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. In other words, what, what Matthew is saying here, and what, what Jesus is saying through the writer of Matthew, 
is he's saying that the words we use, the things people say, is a demonstration of their heart. That we demonstrate our heart through the words we say. That, that's why that's what defiles us, not what we eat. Not what goes to our stomach. That's not what defiles a person. But what is coming out of the mouth because it is representative of that person's heart. The preacher goes on to talk about more about the seriousness of what we say and how we approach God by talking about the seriousness of a vow made to God. And he goes on in verses 4 down through 7. Let's read. He says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth, let not your mouth lead you to sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Again, we see that the, the vanity that is, that is present along with many words most of the time. These comments made to God, these vows made to God, are a serious thing to be taken seriously. And although today we don't talk that much about making vows to God, about vowing something to God, in the Old Testament it was a lot more common. We read about it in the Old Testament, vows being made to God. Uh, we read where uh, prophets are dedicated, like the prophet Samuel, he's dedicated to the Lord. His, his mother makes a vow to commit him to God. People take uh, vows of, of celibacy or, or uh, the Levites. They vow not to cut their hair and, and all of these. And the vows were a lot more common in the Old Testament, made to God. But it was made very clear in this passage and in other passages that these vows are not to be made rashly or in a foolish manner or, or too hastily, but they are to be taken seriously. That's why verse 5 makes it clear that it's better not to vow anything to God, not to vow at all, than to vow and not pay. It's better not to make the vow. We're given a graphic example of the seriousness that a vow before God is when we read the story of Jephthah. In Judges chapter 11. If you're not familiar with the story of Jephthah, it's the story of a man who, uh, though was, was cast out from Israel for a time, was a, a, a great military leader. And he was called upon by the Israelites to come in and lead them against the Ammonites, to fight against the Ammonites, to defend their land, to defend uh, the, the land that God had given his people. And so he goes and, and he fights against the Ammonites uh, and, and defeats them. But before he goes and fights, Jephthah makes a vow to God. And if you read in, in Judges 11, it, it talks about how he made this vow rashly. It was a bad, it was a tragic, it was an inappropriate vow to make to God. And, and the story Jephthah makes about to God, he says, God, if you will give me victory over the Ammonites, give me victory over my enemies, then the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me when I come home, I will sacrifice to you. I will give as a burnt offering to you, God. He makes this vow to God rashly, foolishly, foolish thing to say. He finds victory over the Ammonites, comes home from victory. And what should be the first thing to come out of his house to greet him but his own daughter? His only daughter, in fact. 
and he rent his clothes, he tore his clothes, he wept because he recognized the foolishness of what he had done and making this vow to God that he would sacrifice his daughter. And he sacrificed his daughter. This is the seriousness with which we must take vows before God. This is not to be taken flippantly. This is not to be taken lightly. And even though these types of vows are maybe not commonplace today, there are appropriate times when vows are made today. Take, for example, in Christian marriage. This is a vow not just to your spouse, but a vow to God of your commitment to this person. Take, for example, church membership. Your commitment to the local church is another example of a vow to God to be committed to, to serve, to honor his church, his bride. So we, we do have vows today that are made before God. Maybe we don't call them a vow. But it's the same thing. And even doing these things, we must recognize the seriousness of what we have committed to. That this is a holy God that should be feared that we are vowing in front of, vowing to. To quote one of, uh, one of my favorite teachers and preachers, uh, Dr. Moeller, one of his favorite phrases on his podcast, The Briefing, uh, a, a simple one, but it's words matter. Words matter. This is why we ought to let our words be few, as the preacher says in verse 7. Because he makes a clear correlation, a clear connection between foolishness and an excess of words, a poor use of words. And this is especially true when it comes to our worship. This is especially true when it comes to how we worship God. He finishes this section off in verse 7 by reiterating what I believe to be the theme of not just this section in our passage, but the entire theme of, of chapter 5 and arguably the, the uh, kind of one of the main themes of Ecclesiastes by saying, God is the one you must fear. He says earlier, what does he say? God is in heaven and you are on earth. A right fear of God leads to a right worship of God. Having a proper fear of the Lord not only prepares us to hear God's word, it informs the way we sing about him, the way we praise him. This is why I take so seriously the, the songs that we sing here at church, the songs that we choose. And I'm so thankful to Robert for his faithfulness and, and not just grabbing the coolest song off Caleb or not just going to the easiest song that it is to, to play on the guitar, to sing, but, but puts effort into the songs that are selected, songs that, that sing about God in a right manner, who God is, representing Him properly, songs that, uh, that are faithful to the Word of God. Because when we sing these things, two things are happening. We are both, uh, we are informed in the songs we sing by our fear of God, but also the songs we sing and songs that we sing inform our view of God. So when we sing songs that are that teach a bad theology or, or a poor view of God, that is that is infecting the way we think, the way we view God, the way that we worship God. And I I do get very frustrated sometimes over over some selections of, of worship songs, people that songs that people sing that they that they love and they they oh man I love to sing this worship song songs that sound more like they're being sung to someone's boyfriend than to a holy and righteous. God. We have to understand that in our worship, we want every aspect, the words we say, the songs we sing, to portray the God that we believe in. 
And we believe in a God that is holy. A God that deserves reverence and awe. Therefore, we need to be careful that the words we say, the songs we sing, reflect that same awe, that same reverence, that same fear of God that we see here in Ecclesiastes. The, the author now shifts gears. So he, he's been talking about the fear of God thus far, uh, a right worship, how to worship God properly. And then he shifts gears, begins talking what seems like almost out of the blue. He talks about the vanity of wealth and honor. Uh, our next point uh, is the vanity of wealth. And he starts off this section uh, in verses 8 and 9 by talking about governance of all things. He says this, if you see a province... In, excuse me, if you see in a province, province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivating fields. In verses 8 and 9, he begins this section by talking about the, the injustice that is common in our society today. In, the injustice that's common in the world. In fact, the preacher makes it a point uh, to say that injustice is so common, so like rel like here in the world, so present, that we shouldn't even be surprised when we see it in the world. When we come across injustice being done to the poor, uh, to the oppressed, to the, the citizens of a society, we shouldn't go, what? What on earth? Since when? No, the preacher tells us this is commonplace in the world. Do not be amazed. He said, when you see this, when you come across this kind of injustice. And though it's hard to understand exactly the meaning of these verses in this passage, uh, when he talks especially there at the end of, of this is gain for land in every way a king committed to cultivate fields. Some, some speculate that he is saying that, oh, it's a good thing the way kings cultivate fields. Some speculate he's saying, oh, no, it's actually more of a bad connotation that they, they steal from those who are cultivating fields. But, but whatever the case, it is clear that, uh, that, it, that it seems clear that the preacher is saying that there is corruption that appears at all levels of society, all levels of government even. He says that there is one over him, and then one over him, and there's one over, over all of them, that all through the levels of government, levels of society that we see, there is evil, there is corruption, there is injustice. Don't be surprised by it. The writer goes on in verses 10 through 17, so he's talked about honor there, and he goes and, and begins talking about wealth in 10 through 17. Let's read. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase to them to eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing with him for his coil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. So the writer goes on in this passage to describe all kinds of way in which 
money, the pursuit of money, wealth is unsatisfactory and ultimately vanity in this world. Randy Alcorn, I think, does a good job of, of kind of summarizing in a, in a neat way this section of, of scripture in his book, The Treasure Principle. And he outlines kind of these verses and principles of wealth and principles of, of money. And he says this is point number one in verse 10. The more you have, the more you want. We see that in verse 10, talking about the, that you are never satisfied. In verse 10, who loves money will not be satisfied. We see also in verse 10 that the more you have, the, the uh, less you're satisfied. The more you want and the less you're satisfied. The more you have, in verse 11, the more people, including the government, will come after it. That's for all you libertarians out there. Uh, the more you have, fourth point, is the more you realize it, or excuse me, the more you have, the more you realize that it does you no good, he says in verse 11. The fifth point, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. In verse 12. In verse 13, the more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Seventh point, the more you have, the more you have to lose. In verse 14. And then finally in verse 15, the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. It's vanity. You can't take it with you. It doesn't satisfy. The more people are going to want it and are going to want to take it from you. And I think all of us have seen probably this entire list on display in someone at one point or another, whether that's someone that we know personally, whether it's a, a someone in society, a, a star or a celebrity that we know of, we can all think of times when we've seen this on display. I don't know anyone in here who can't think of at least one illustration of the fact that money does not satisfy, that wealth does not satisfy. We see it over and over and over again, and yet this is such an important passage of scripture for us here in the U.S. to hear. Because here in the United States, we are, we are especially susceptible to this kind of materialistic, money-driven culture that we live in. One author named Jessie O'Neill coined the term affluenza, which she describes as the unhealthy relationship with money or the pursuit of money, which is a part of why the rise of, of such a, a health and wealth prosperity gospel has happened so rapidly here in the U.S. We're so susceptible to this, this type of affluenza, this affluence that we are so set up as such a, an ideal, the American dream, right? To have the, the two-car garage, the house with the picket fence, the, uh, all the stuff, the dog in the yard, I mean, everything. And we, and we set up this ideal of, of wealth and what we need and what we should have and, and what is right in society for us to have even to the point where we feel like we've been committed injustice if we don't have the wealth that we think we should have. We here in the United States are so susceptible and desperately need to hear this. And again, like I said, this is why there has been such a, such a rise in this health and wealth teaching, this bad false gospel, the prosperity gospel that is so rampant in the world today, especially here in our culture. Just this week, I was listening to a sermon, and it wasn't even a sermon that I was listening to, like, to prepare for this, but I, I thought it was, I mean, so applicable to what we read here about the vanity of wealth and honor. And it was a sermon by uh, David Platt talking about um, the suffering that believers go through. And it, it was a sermon based mostly on Jeremiah 2011, or excuse me, Jeremiah 29, 11. 
And he talks about how this verse has been so so twisted, so misconstrued uh, to, to mean what, what especially prosperity gospels want it to mean, that, that it's just been grossly abused in the way it's been used. The, the verse says, uh, it's God speaking to his people of Israel. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans for your good, not to harm you, but to build for you a future. This is the, the verse that, that they take and they say, oh, look, these prosperity gospels do. They, they take it and they say, look, God wants you to be prosperous. It is God's will. If you have enough faith, he will prosper you. You will have material things. You will have a good future here on earth. You will have a good life here on earth. But those people take that verse so out of context that if they would simply read the entire chapter of Jeremiah 29, they would recognize that that verse was given, was said, along with the entire chapter, to a people in exile, to the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon, ripped from their homes, ripped from their, their, their land, taken and placed in a foreign country, forced to live there against their will, held captives. In fact, he tells them earlier in this chapter, hey, get comfortable. He says, make houses, plant gardens, pay taxes, get to know the people that you're with, because you're going to be there for a while. In fact, he goes on to tell them that not until 70 years have passed will he bring his people back to the land. He was speaking to a people who actually were in a very desperate place, who were not experiencing health and wealth. And so the, the interpretation of, of Jeremiah 2911 that says that, oh, if you believe in God, you have enough faith that he will, because he wants to, because he wants you to have stuff, he will give you all this great stuff. He will give you help. He will give you wealth. He will prosper you here on earth. And that is such a lie. The people of Israel would have just thought that was foolishness to, to interpret this text that way. They're like, no, he's talking to us in exile. In fact, he rebuked the false prophets who were coming and saying to the people that the, the uh, exile was going to end very soon. He said, don't believe them. They're lying. And yet, this verse is so twisted, and, and, and people buy into this. We are, are susceptible to buying into this, to believe that these things here on earth are not vanity, but things that God wants us to have, and that we should have, and that are right for us to have. And in no other context in the Christian church, besides pretty much here in the West, does that make any sense. The church in China, being persecuted, killed simply for their faith, has... No understanding, uh, and, and it just doesn't make sense to them that someone would believe a gospel like that. Makes no sense at all. It is a system that is built off of a desire for things that are fleeting, things that don't last, things that are vanity. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is telling us, telling us over and over again here. It's vanity. It's all vanity. Point number three. But there is satisfaction available. That satisfaction is sold separately from these things here on earth. Satisfaction is not found in the things that we have here on earth. It's not found in material blessings alone. It is not, uh, it is not that. What does the pre preacher say in conclusion to all of this vanity of wealth? Well, you might think that he would throw up his hands after after reciting all of this, oh, this is vanity, this is a grievous evil, this is bad, this guy's not even gonna keep his money. You might think that he would say, just throw up your hands, get rid of the money you have, don't even worry about money, don't think about it. it like I said, it's vanity, so just 
give it away. It's just, just don't even do anything with it. It's, it's bad to even keep it. But that's not what he says. And that might seem like the counsel we would get that we would draw here, but it's not. Look what he says instead in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. This is not sarcasm. He is not speaking in a sarcastic way to say, well, might as well just go live it up then because it doesn't matter. Might as well just go get the most out of it that you can right now because pretty soon you'll just be ashes and that'll be the end of that. No, he is saying, this is what I've discovered. To be good and fitting that we eat, that we drink, that we find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun and all the things that we do, that we find pleasure, that we find joy and, and enjoyment and happiness in those things. But mind you, not in these things alone. Essentially, what the preacher is saying is eat and drink and be merry. Enjoy the lot that God has given you. And he is not excluding wealth and worldly possessions from this equation. He's not saying uh, eat, be, drink, be merry apart from those worldly possessions. In fact, in 19, he goes on to say this. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. He's telling us specifically here that the very things that he was saying earlier were vanity, the very things that he has already said are, are meaningless and, and filled with evil and injustice. These things that he was saying are vanity. He's now taking a very different tone in which he says about these very things. In these verses, he is recognizing the fact that all of our wealth, our earthly possessions, are a gift from God. And understanding that it is, excuse me, an understanding from this perspective is what allows us to appreciate and enjoy these gifts that God has given us. That's what he's talking about when he says the power to enjoy them. That the ability, the power, the, the, the thing that makes us able to enjoy the good things that God has given us, wealth, possessions, things here on earth, comes from God. It is a recognition of the fact that these things are gifts from God to be used by us for His glory and to His glory. This perspective is what allows us to enjoy the things that God has given us. In fact, I would make the argument that the preacher is saying here in verse 19 that there are only, uh, only some people who are able to actually fully enjoy these things, fully enjoy material things here on earth. And those people, the only people who are able to fully, rightfully enjoy these things are people who, are, who understand them rightfully to be gifts from God. This makes sense in the context of what we see the preacher writes here and in the rest of Ecclesiastes. I mean, we, we see in the very next chapter, verse 2, that there are some to whom the Lord gives wealth, possessions, honor, that he doesn't give them the ability to enjoy it. So, so, in other words, the preacher has said there are some who have the ability to enjoy the good things that God has given us, and there are some that don't. So the question is, who is it that can enjoy the good things that God has given us? And I dare say that it is us as believers 
The ones who know the God who gives good gifts. The one who recognizes that the things that we have here on earth are from him. All the good things here in this earth. A, a, a job, family, friends, uh, wealth, sex. All good things that we have here on earth are to be enjoyed and can only be enjoyed to their fullest in Christ. Only then can they be enjoyed to the fullest. John Piper, actually the same guy who uh, is kind of in charge of Desiring God Ministries, has coined this type of philosophy, this phrase, uh, this way of living that he calls Christian hedonism. And if you're at all familiar with hedonism, then that might sound to you like an oxymoron. Because this idea of hedonism is, is whatever feels good, do it. Try and get the most fun, the most pleasure out of life and out of other people and out of things that you can. Like that is what is most important in life is, is experiencing pleasure and happiness and joy. That that is what is most important, most valuable in life is to experience pleasure. And in the world's context, that manifests itself in, in sexual misbehavior and drunkenness and and giving themselves over to whatever kind of passions, whatever kind of desires pop into their head, thinking that that will bring them the most pleasure, and the most joy, and the most happiness. But John Piper makes a point of saying, I agree with the, with the statement that as Christians, we should desire that which is going to bring us the most joy, the most pleasure in this life and the next. And his argument is that that is only found in Christ. That in Christ, we will experience far more joy, far more pleasure, far more goodness in this life and the next in Christ. That as Christians, we do get to experience the most pleasure, the most joy, the most satisfaction. In fact, we are the only ones who get to experience fullness of joy and satisfaction. And we experience it in Christ. I love this concept of, of Christian hedonism, of joy that is available in Christ, because it is so true. Because what we, from this understanding then, from, from this perspective, we read all of these things that, that are, are vanity apart from Christ, the, the wealth, the money, uh, all of these things, the, the possessions that we have, the honor that we have, that are all vanity apart from Christ, and say, in Christ, guess what? We are encouraged to enjoy these things. Enjoy them. Eat. Drink, find enjoyment in the toil on which we toil under the sun. That that is good. Recognizing that they are gifts from God and praising Him for it leads to far more pleasure, far more joy, satisfaction that's found in Christ. And what it also means is that when those things aren't happening for us, when we don't have the money, when we don't have the prosperity, when we don't have the land, X, Y, or Z, but guess what? Satisfaction is still ours. Joy is still ours. It is a good thing that satisfaction is sold separately from all of this garbage because now we can enjoy this stuff here on earth, and when we don't have it, guess what? Still satisfied. Still joy to be had, which is why I love it. So th thank you, Robert, for the song that we sang earlier, that we are satisfied in you. As we wrap up, I want us to think about the this chapter in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes excuse me, becomes clear that, that the overarching consistent message of this chapter is to fear the Lord. Fear of God 
demonstrates here two things. It demonstrates, one, that it prepares us for and produces in us right worship, proper worship before God. And second, fear of God gives us an understanding of God as the giver of all good things and gives us the ability to enjoy the gifts of God that we would be unable to enjoy otherwise. These are good things that both flow out of a fear of God, a right understanding of who God is, a respect and honor and awe of God as our loving Father and as the supreme ruler of the universe. This just points us right back to our benediction. Uh, that is going to be our benediction all through this series, and it's the end of Ecclesiastes, where he says, "The end of the matter." Uh, excuse me. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Understanding God rightly as a holy and righteous and just God and Father is essential to the Christian life. And all of our worship, all of our joy in this life and the next will flow from a fear of God, from this understanding. Let's pray.